Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we left off last week. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own one as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. And we have a habit here of just working through books of the Bible. And so we are working through a series on the first uh, letter to Timothy in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. And we are at the beginning of chapter 5. So I'm going to read the first half of the chapter here. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, or maybe you're new, just investigating Christianity, um, it it may seem kind of odd. You may think, oh, well, I'm behind. What, what, What have they been talking about? Well, we'll catch you up, and you'll get some context of this passage that we're going to look at today. And this is a letter written to a church by the Apostle Paul, who's a man that God radically saved. Even though he was opposed to the gospel and Christ, God saved him and then sent him on a mission to be the man through whom much of the Bible is written and who planted many of the churches in the New Testament and God used miraculously. And now this is a letter that years later he is writing to a young pastor and has great instruction for the church and how the church should live. So I'm going to read and then I'll pray and we're going to dissect, we're going to look back through this passage that we're going to read this morning and, and Lord willing, glean some things for us and how it would apply to us as Christians in our time and setting. So First Timothy chapter 5 starting in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." 
all right, well, this is one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible, because I wouldn't ordinarily wake up on a Sunday morning or earlier on in the week and say, well, let's just preach about how the church should care for uh, widows in the first century. But I pray that as we work through this text, we'll see uh, really some great applicability, not that caring for widows is a small matter at all, but we might think, is that something that Paul needed? Yes, it is. And I think it is a bigger picture of how the church as a body should care for one another. So what is in the balance here? Is the church living out the implications of what it means to be the people of God? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through this. I forgot to mention at the beginning, if you weren't here last week, and you missed Dr. Crawford Loritz, who was our guest from uh, Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, who was with us, preached about uh, racial reconciliation and the integrity of the gospel. We'd love for you to download that on our website or pick up a CD. um, At the, They actually still make these little physical things that you can put in something that plays the actual file. Who knew? They still have those things, but if you're one of those people that's maybe technologically advanced and you need an actual thing, um, I think we make copies of those things, and they're out on the um, information table. We'd love for you to get that. Uh, Let me pray, and then let's ask the Lord to help us. Um, Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. Thank you for Dr. Loritz last Sunday and his timely message to us as your people thinking about the implications of the gospel. This morning we draw our attention to the implications of the gospel from ethnicity and our concern to care for people who are not like us culturally to caring for people in our very midst, caring for vulnerable people, caring for widows, for women, for one another. Lord, I pray that you would help us see your plan and purpose for the church. And as we think about our responsibility as a local church towards one another, we think about our our sister churches in our city. I thank you, Lord, for the other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our town. I I pray that you'd give them grace. We pray for Evangel Temple across the street and that you would uh, pour out your grace to them as they gather this morning. I thank you for St. Andrew's Presbyterian and Piney Grove Baptist and the downtown churches for St. Luke and First Baptist and First Presbyterian. Lord, we pray that you'd be good to them and that people would be drawn to faith in Jesus in those churches this morning and that believers would be encouraged and spurred on. And We're very mindful that we in America are just a tiny little portion of your bride. There are believers all over, as Reynolds prayed, for those sister congregations we have in Haiti and Uganda. We think of the persecuted church in the Middle East. We think of our brothers and sisters in Iran. We pray for your grace to them. Lord, help us now tune our attention to this text. And may the result of our time together this morning in your word, and then as we see two people baptized at the end of our worship service, May the result be that this little church would be more like Christ. Lord, for those that are in this room this morning who are not yet trusting in Jesus, by your grace, would you save them? And for those of us who are trusting, would you, would you form us more into the likeness of your Son? In Jesus' name, we put all of our hope, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So, 
There's two things that I think uh, I want to say before we work our way through this text again. First, um, I, I think that when we look at a text like this, it talks about maybe not a very exciting aspect of church life. I think there are two obstacles that generally Americans like us have to be aware of. One is that um, we have a natural default towards consumerism. We are not uh, naturally inclined to see the church as a family like we're going to look at here in a moment, but rather as just a, a kind of resource hub by which we come and learn some things through which we personally and individually can navigate through life better. So we have this default consumerism that I think we need to confess and fight against. Secondly, we were born and bred in just the soil and the air of, cons- of, of individuality. So we have this consumerism on one side that, that hinders us, and then we just have this, we're just Americans, right? We just do it on your own. Just be your own man, your captain of your own soul, your own woman, and we don't think in the context corporately of family. So let's, let's admit that as we go into this text. And I want us to look at verses 1 and 2 again. And here's the first point. I'm just going to work through this text. Here's the first truth or point that I want you to see in this is that the church is a spiritual family. So those of you that are note takers, you can write that down. We'll have it on the screen. If you're not a note taker, by the way, I need to say this, say this occasionally. That's okay. Some of you would be better if you didn't take notes and didn't care. You just kind of let it just absorb in your heart. So either way, do your own thing. We don't put that up there to produce guilt or make it an academic exercise. Just let, just let it be. All right. So number one is there, the church is a family. Look at verses one and two again. Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. I think there's three directions that Paul is pointing us as a family, as a local church, which is to be a spiritual family. He's pointing us in three directions and saying you are to honor three different groups of people. First, he says to this young man, Timothy, who's pastoring this church, that he should create a culture of honor for older people. To this young man, Timothy, he says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him. And then respect older women as mothers. So um, if you're newer, you may not be aware of this, but Crosspoint is a very young church. And I'm not just talking about the youth of most of the people here, but I'm talking about the actual Time that we've been a church. We started this church a little over 11 years ago. And 11 years ago, I was 34 years old. And my wife was about that age. Let's just put it that way. And <laughs> um, lunch is going to be fun. And we were some of the oldest people in the church. By God's grace, we have grown not only numerically and more importantly, spiritually, Lord willing, but we've also grown generationally. And this has been one of God's kindest gifts to us in our short history as a church. But let's be aware of the fact that we live in a culture that makes an idol out of being young. It worships youth. And this is a dangerous and fragile thing to build a society on. And it's a very vain thing as well. Uh, 
Last couple of years, we've had the privilege to be in partnership with these churches in Uganda, which we prayed for this morning, and also India. And I've been able to go to Uganda a couple times and India. And Lord willing, I'll be going to India again this upcoming February, I think. And then uh, again, Lord willing, Uganda again in the summer. And one thing that strikes me about Ugandan and Indian culture is the respect that younger people have for older people. It's just woven into the way they even greet one another. In fact, in Uganda... Um, they call the pastor of the church Papa, and the wife of the pastor of the church Mama. And um, they don't necessarily call every older person Papa or Mama, but kind of the leader, they call him Papa. And after I had been there for a while, um, they, they sort of transferred that title to me. And this kid comes up to me and he says, Papa, how's Mama doing? And, I said, what, and he was referring, he had seen my wife on Facebook and knew, knew that I was married and he was calling her mama. And there's something kind of beautiful about just that intrinsic cultural thing that a young person would, even in the way they address an older person, just give them a sign of respect. In India, they call everybody that's older than, than them uncle or auntie. And so you're there, and they have this wonderful, just really endearing sort of Indian head shake, you know? It's just kind of their way of, it it really is a beautiful thing. It's their way of posturing themselves in humility to the one that they are speaking. And they're coming to you just kind of in a, hey, I'm, here I am in a gracious, humble, sweet way. And my head is bobbing to let you know that I'm coming in a sign of respect. Uncle Brad. <laughs> now, may, maybe we are more informal here in America, and that's not entirely bad, but I think it would be good for us. It would be good for us to have some similar adaptation, whatever it looks like, some culture of generational respect in this, in just in this church. And notice that the context here is it's not respect, sort of blind respect. In verse 1, Paul is telling Timothy that it seems like the situation is he's going to have to correct an older man. But even when you have to correct or rebuke an older man, do it in gentleness as you would correct even your own father. So the first trajectory that Paul sends Timothy in is this trajectory of honoring those who are older. Maybe just as an application, you're sitting next to somebody that is older. Maybe you're a younger person. I say this often. And you should just initiate conversation because there just seems to be sometimes generational wars in churches where I think the older people are suspicious of the younger people and the younger people are dismissive of the older people. And one of the great signs of a gospel culture is a group of people who reject those broken tendencies. So maybe you're a younger person, and you need to get over yourself. You need to lift your eyes from your iPhone and Facebook and Instagram. In fact, if you're on it right now, just stop it. Just put it away. One of the best things that you can do right now is turn that stupid little box off and listen. And look around you. Notice some people that might have a hair color that looks like it's seasoned by some decades. And brainstorm a way that maybe you can even honor them before you leave this building today. And if you do have hair that is seasoned by decades, 
rather than looking at that little whippersnapper who's on Instagram right now. Give grace to that little kid, to that young punk who's been raised on the cultural crack of self-indulgence of social media. And give them grace, saddle up next to them, and engage them. Let's, Let's try to do that. Secondly, he says that we should honor our peers. He says, treat younger men as brothers. In other words, Timothy, those that are in your generation, um, treat them as you would a brother. We can't be rough on people in our own generation, and I think the reason for that is insecurity and jealousy, because we are constantly sort of stacking ourselves up as to how we Uh, fall out in comparison with people around us. And the other thing is that we just have a culture by social media and by TV that is dominated by sarcasm and cynicism towards one another. And this hurts the, the, the work of the gospel in a group of people. We have young men who compete with one another sort of subconsciously out of insecurity and that hinders the work of the gospel. We have young women who are constantly measuring themselves up against other young women and how they look. And maybe we have young mothers who are in these little subliminal subconscious mommy wars to see whose children can memorize Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And I don't even know if that is a thing, but whatever. If, if their children can be great musicians or great athletes or, or sleep through the night or do whatever. And it's these little comparison wars that hinder our ability to let our defenses down and love one another as peers. And we live in a culture where we are so quick to assume the worst of other people. Aren't we? I think there's just something about staring in front of a little, sitting behind a little computer monitor or a screen or an iPad and looking at somebody else's life or something that maybe they are doing, you know, and there's just this natural tendency to assume the worst. Road rage has now become social media rage. You know, isn't that weird how when you're on the road and you're encapsulated in a little metal box called a car and somebody does something stupid around you, isn't it weird how that could just infuriate you? Like, oh, that person cut me off. They don't even deserve to live. What is what's in us? Well, that that broken human tendency to just absolutely assume the worst about the horrific human being who's in the car next to you, who is the epitome of human uselessness, has now transferred into this heart that's staring at a little phone about some person who maybe posts something stupid on Facebook, and you're just like, oh. Listen to these words from, and actually, we don't quote living people here. You usually have to be dead for a while to get your name up on the... But this pastor, pastor's out in California. His name is Milton Vincent. He's wrote a real helpful little devotional book called The Gospel Primer for Christians. It's just kind of some daily readings. And listen to what he says. This quote struck me a few months ago when I read it. He said, The more I experience the gospel, and if you're not familiar with what the gospel is, we're going to talk about it in a moment. The more I experience the gospel, the more there develops within me a yearning affection for my fellow Christians, and I would argue just all people, who are also participating in the glories of the gospel. 
This affection for them comes loaded with confidence in their continued spiritual growth and ultimate glorification. And it becomes my pleasure to express to them this loving confidence regarding the ongoing work of God in their lives. Wow, what a quote. And if a, if a church culture, a church family, if we could interact with one another with that truth, that gospel truth, just kind of ringing in our backgrounds, it could, in the back of our minds, it could transform the way we interact with one another. That we are loaded up with confidence in God's work in that person's life, even if in that moment they are doing something really, really foolish or really, really aggravating. So we should honor our peers. And then the third direction that this, these, these two verses send us in as we think about the church being a spiritual family is it says, honor the opposite gender. It says, young men, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Oh, that the church, that this church would be a place where young women don't feel objectified, but they feel safe, where they feel that they are not judged by how they stack up in physical attractiveness compared to other women, but they feel intrinsically valued because they are made in the image of God. And may we be a culture of a church that has great grace. Listen to me carefully. May we be a place that has great grace towards young women who are detoxing from the muck and the mire of the culture that they grew up in. It's hard being a young woman in this culture. I've never been one. (laughs) But I think, thank you, I think one of the hardest things to be in our culture is a young woman who is constantly hearing this whisper that you are the sum of what broken, lustful, male-dominated culture thinks of you. And when you grow up like that, you inevitably are going to have residue and baggage that will affect your life. Young women, it will affect the... The clothing choices that you make. It will affect the, the way you present yourself in social media. It will, it will affect everything that you do. It will affect your interactions with young men because you have grown up in a world that you have been lied to and says, this is what it means to be a woman. And may this church and the culture of this church be a place where it is safe for a young woman to detox from that cultural garbage bin that she lives in outside of this church. So that means maybe having grace for young women who don't have all these things figured out. And that means older men mentoring younger men and teaching them how to treat women and to care for women and to serve women and to love women. And it means that we have a culture of respect for women as it's countercultural to this broken world around us. So the church is to be a spiritual family. Secondly, the church is a family that cares for vulnerable members. Look again at verses 3 through 8. Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows, 
But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So before we look at what's going on in this text, we need to understand that God throughout the scriptures has always called his people to have a particular care for widows and sojourners and orphans. And these three groups of people, the widows... The sojourners or the travelers and orphans were three groups of people that represented vulnerable people. And a theme you see throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, even in this text, is that God calls his people to be a place for vulnerable people. I won't take the time to walk you through it, but if you look at Deuteronomy, laced all throughout Deuteronomy... And this word Deuteronomy is literally, it means the second giving of the law. So God formed a people. He gave them his law through Moses. They, he rescued them from Egyptian captivity. They wandered through the desert. They're at the edge of the promised land. The older generation, because of their faith, faithlessness, is dying off and will not get to go into the promised land. And God is giving his law again to this younger generation. He's reminding them of how and why he has formed them as a nation. Not just so that they would be saved from Egypt, but so that through their life together as a local group of people, as the people of God, through their life, they would be a light to the nations around them so that through the life of God's people, God could draw all other people to himself. And one of the great concerns that God has for Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church is that they be a place that cares for the widow, the sojourner, and the orphan. And there are all of these commandments and laws about how they are to care for widows. And we see this picked up in the New Testament in in Paul's instruction to Timothy. He's saying here that there are these widows in the church. And the context is, is that there are widows, some of whom are without family and have no other means by which they can be helped and and, uh, survive. And there are those that maybe do have family. And Paul is very careful not to have the church interrupt or usurp the responsibility that a family should have for the care of their widows. But he says that those the church should be discerning and those that truly need help, the church has the responsibility to help widows and to care for widows. And in this church, we have several widows and it's our particular concern. It's part of what it means to be God's people to care for widows. But let's not just stop at widows to care for all vulnerable, vulnerable people around us. For people who, for whatever reason, are in a situation where they need care and love because they are vulnerable. In the context of this writing, widows would have been very vulnerable financially they would have had very likely no way to make an income and to provide food and shelter. And Paul is calling the church to care for these vulnerable members. 
While that may not necessarily be the case for most widows in our context and our culture, certainly there's spiritual encouragement and emotional support that needs to happen. And then, again, let's not just stop at widows. Let's just think about people around us. People that, for a variety of reasons, are vulnerable spiritually or going through a challenging time. And the call in the church is to care for the vulnerable. So what does this, think, what does this look like for a church like Crosspoint? Well, I want you to think in two, in two ways. I want you to think of organized ways that we care for vulnerable. And I want you to think of organic ways that we care for vulnerable people in our midst. The first organized ways. Well, we have uh, community groups. We have, we have smaller groups, Bible studies, people in community in smaller groups where needs are known and shared. When we started this church, we were just a, a very small group of people and we all kind of knew everything that was going on in everybody's life. But now we're a much larger group of people and it's impossible to do life biblically in a group full of hundreds of people. So you have to get together in smaller groups and we need community groups. That's the way that we mediate caring for one another here at this church. And so if you haven't found a community group, we'd love for you to find a community group. We need more community groups. Maybe you're a mature Christian and you're a member of this church. We'd love for you to consider leading a community group. It doesn't mean that you need to have some great gift of teaching. It just means that you need to have a burden and a care to help be one of the under-shepherds that God uses to care for the people around you that we as a church family have a responsibility to care for. Another tangible and organized way that we do care for vulnerable people in a more tangible way is through a benevolence team. We have a deacon over benevolence. And when we have situations in our church where people are in financial crisis, we have men who will sit down and help these people work through them, maybe even to the point of the church, caring for them in a monetary way to help them with bills that they cannot pay for whatever reason or season of life that they are in. These are organized ways, but think not just there. Think about terms in terms of how all of us as a family All of us as a church family have a responsibility to not just in an organized way, but in an organic, in a natural way to have our heads on a swivel, so to speak, to be aware of the needs around us. So if you are not somehow connected with people in your local church It's impossible for you to live out the implications of this verse, this passage about how we are to be a discerning group of people who are aware of the needs around us and we are able to engage them and care for them. So uh, think about ways that you, as a Christian, part of the spiritual family, whether you're younger or older, can be aware of the needs around you and you can, at a very minimum, pray for and in some needs, in some instances, actually physically meet the needs of the people you are around you. And don't discount, don't discount just the, the power of emotional encouragement. And when you're next to somebody that is in a difficult situation, how you just knowing their name and loving them and praying for them and remembering their name and seeing them next Sunday or writing them an email or calling them throughout the week has transformative power in the life of a church. So the church is to care for the vulnerable amongst them. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 16. And here's the third point I want us to see. Is that the church is a family where all have a role 
to play. The church is a family. We're not just all of us are to care for one another, but all of us have a role to play in caring for the vulnerable. Verses, verse 9 through 16. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. In that verse, let me just stop. Paul is not condemning marriage. He's not saying that marriage is a bad thing. But the context seems to be clearly that these younger widows, he's saying be discerning before you help these younger widows because some of them that are in the church uh, may prove themselves to really not be truly devoted to Christ because they're just going to marry the next available guy who isn't a Christian and they'll walk away from the faith. So he's saying there, not don't get married. He's saying be discerning about these younger widows who might prove themselves to not really being truly committed to Christ. Verse 12, or verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So again, Paul is calling the church towards a discernment to help those who truly need help. But I want you to look again at verses 9 and 10. He talks about these widows who are not less than 60 years of age. And then look at verse 10, what it says there about these widows who are, again, destitute without any ability to help themselves, truly in need. And what does he say about these widows? He says that they have a reputation for good works, that they've brought up children, they've shown hospitality, they've washed the feet of the saints, they've cared for the afflicted, and they have devoted themselves to every good work. And so notice here this truth of the gospel that those people who on the outside, as, as far as the world would judge it, don't have anything to offer are actually people who do offer great service to the church. These widows who would be so vulnerable, who maybe from an outside world would say, these people are not going to help us build this church. They don't have the gifts. They don't have this. They don't have that. But yet these women who seemingly had nothing to give the church had incredible gifts to give the church because they had a reputation for good works. They brought up children. They showed hospitality. They served and washed the feet of the saints. They cared for the afflicted and devoted themselves to every good work. And here's this lie that enters into uh, people's hearts that sometimes we think, boy, I'm destitute. I'm vulnerable. I don't have anything good to give God. And we get on sort of this spiritual welfare mentality where we think that People around us are just, the church is there to just serve us. And Paul calls even the most vulnerable, these elderly widows over the age of 60, and he, he, he gives them dignity and emboldens them to be these women that serve the church, even though the world around them would say these people have no value. They're going to be a drain on your system. And Paul infuses them with dignity and says that even they have blessed the church. 
So there's nobody in this room that is unqualified. Once Jesus has made you new, there's nobody in this room who's unqualified to serve and play a role in the church. Which leads us to our last and final point. And I think we see this embedded in this text and in this whole letter. And it is this. It is that the church is a family that points beyond itself to the gospel. I hope you understand that Paul is not, the point here is not just the the more mannerly functioning of the society of the church. The point just isn't some administrative political one. You know, we've got this problem with widows, and we've got to take care of them, so let's come up with his system and these guidelines for how we're going to take care of widows because it's a problem. No, embedded and underneath all of this is this greater truth that the church exists for a reason and it is pointing to something beyond itself which is the gospel itself. Because friends, when we stare at this text long enough, we see that we are all like the widows in this text. We are vulnerable. We are helpless. And what has Christ done to us? He has rescued us from the vulnerability of our life situation and put us, made us, adopted us, made us one of his children, and made us useful. And he's saying, church, be a kind of picture of that as you care for the vulnerable among you. So you're caring for widows, you're caring for the vulnerable, you're caring for one another is a kind of representation, it's a kind of earthly picture of the very gospel itself that you were dead, you were lost, you were as good as dead. And Christ loved you and came And laid down his life to bear the wrath that should have been yours on the cross. And rose again in victory over death, sin, and the grave. And now commands all people to trust in him and not in themselves. And he has protected you from the thing that you are most vulnerable to. And that is God's holiness and God's judgment. And now he calls the church to interact with one another in a way that the way that we care for the vulnerable preaches the gospel to an onlooking world. So four questions that I end with very quickly to examine our own hearts. Question one, do I prioritize relationships in the local church? The context of this letter is a local church gathered together. Remember what we said at the beginning, we have to fight against individuality and consumerism. How do you, okay, how, why did you decide to come to Crosspoint? Why are you sticking around? Maybe this is your first time and this is your only time and well, we love you and I realize maybe we, maybe we didn't hit the mark today, whatever. But why do you, why did you come here? Did you find the children's ministry to your liking? Praise God. Do you like the music? Good. Is the preaching adequate? Okay. Is the style good people? Okay, all those are wonderful reasons and helpful things. But if you stay there, 
you, you can never really live out this verse. God calls Christians to not be consumers of the body of Christ, but to be participants in it and to care for and prioritize relationships in the local church. Of course, not to the exclusion of brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches in our city. Of course, we want those relationships all across the board. But the context of 1 Timothy 5 is a local church making decisions about people that they are responsible for in a way that makes them more responsible for one another than they do the Christians down the street in another local church. Do you see that? This verse has no teeth. It has no application in the life of a Christian apart from the committed, prioritized life of a group of people in a local church. And that cuts against every bit of American individuality and consumerism. Where we just, ah, well, you know, I want to go to that sermon. This guy ticked me off, so I'm going I'm to jump around from place to place to place. Do we prioritize relationships in the local church? Secondly, what gifts or resources do I have that can be used to care for the vulnerable people in this room? And don't think just monetarily, a word of encouragement. Uh, Maybe just time, time to listen, to care for. And there's something about just being in relationship with other people and you taking whatever God has given you to use it that God uses in miraculous, organic, incarnational ways for the good of those around us. So just do maybe, just a, that would be a wonderful thing to talk about over lunch. Instead of criticizing something or sort of talking about a football game yesterday, something that would be far more eternally valuable would be for you to just think about how has God stationed me in life in a way that I can use what he has given me, whether that is a physical or intangible thing, for the good of those other Christians that God has put around me. Not just so that we can function more properly as a church, but so that through us we are a better picture of the gospel to an onlooking world. That would be a wonderful thing to just brainstorm this afternoon. Amen? Amen. You're excited. <laughs> Thirdly, when I gather with my church family, is my default orientation inward or outward? Do I come in a little late? Do I leave a little early? Do I keep myself at arm's distance from those around me? And then do I complain because people weren't warm to me? Are you easily frustrated with the people around you? Are you critical? Are you, is your default mode cynicism and sarcasm and critique? Those all may be indicators that you have a natural selfish bent towards you like every other human, by the way. And you need to fight against that. Confession time here. Are you disappointed when the text of the Scripture doesn't speak to you? Full disclosure, is this a safe place? Is this, can I, can we we talk? Is this safe? There are times when I will sit down at a text as we work through and I'll think, ah, that's not going to be a zinger. How am I going to, how am I going to crank that one up? So that we can get a uh, full confession. This was one of those weeks. 
And what does that reveal about us? That, that we, want the, we want the benefits of life together as a church. And we don't want to roll up our sleeves and say, you know what, there's something better than that. There's something better than being a consumer. There's a life to engage in. And there's people to love. And the, the brokenness that exists in this room, if we could all unpack our suitcases, if we could all pull back the curtain in our lives, it would simultaneously shock and encourage all of us. But we never get there if we let ourselves stay in that little inward-focused mode. And then finally, do I believe the lie? Do I believe the lie that some perceived lack in me disqualifies me from being used by God? Think about these widows in verses 9 and 10. They had nothing. (laughs) They weren't candidates for usefulness in the church. But they washed the feet of the saints. They brought up children. You know what? I mean, come on. Bringing up children, how hard is that? (laughs) Amen. And you young moms that, you grandmoms that care for kids, man, that's, that's spiritual fruit. They show hospitality. They... You know what the word hospitality means in the original language? It means love of strangers. It doesn't just mean having somebody over for grilled cheese. It means that you love people not like you. And these people that seemed in the world's eyes to be disqualified from usefulness, God used in beautiful organic ways for the glory of the gospel and the life of the local church. Oh, that we would be a place full of vulnerable people caring for vulnerable people because therein lies the power of the gospel in a local church. Let's pray. Father, as we now see a brother and a sister baptized as they, through their testimony, proclaim the gospel of how you, through the work of your Son, His perfect life, His substitutionary and sacrificial death, bore your wrath against them and how He extinguished it and satisfied it and removed it and how then He rose again from the grave and gave them life everlasting and qualified them to serve not themselves but your people and your mission Lord, may we be warmed. May our affections be stirred as we hear the good news proclaimed in the lives of these people. And as we see them go down into the water, picturing the death that Jesus died for us and we were in him as we died in him to our old way of life. And as we see them come up out of the water, may we be reminded of the resurrection of the Son of God and how we because of the faith and repentance that you have given us, are made alive with Jesus. May we be reminded and warmed and stirred to worship as we see the gospel preached in the baptism of these friends. And may it seize us 
as a church for the glory of your name and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.